Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's other Josh over there, the OJ. <laughs> You're the OG. Yes. He's the OJ. That's right. We should probably come up with a different nickname for you, Josh. That's right. Um, so, oh yeah, this is Stuff You Should Know. The podcast. Nazi Crankhead Edition. We've been doing a lot on Nazis lately. Have we? I guess we have. We did the July 20th plot to assassinate Hitler. Sure. This one? <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, I thought this is interesting. And I remember hearing a lot about this when, um, I mean, there have been plenty of people in books about Nazis doing lots of drugs. Right. But uh, the big one that came out called Blitzed from uh, author Noman Oler really made a lot of hay in the news. For sure. Um, it was a it was a big deal when it came out. Just I think in 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, and we are endorsing that book as a good read. Have you read it? Uh, I read a lot of it. Okay, I got you. I heard it's a very exhaustive book. It's pretty exhaustive. So it um, I have not read it, but uh, I it does seem from from some of the stuff I've read about it. Some of the book reviews are like, yeah, this this guy's got the goods. This guy Norman Oler um, spent. Like five years at least in the archives, so it, this isn't just like conjecture. This is very well researched and um, fact based. Well, I guess there's a little conjecture to it because he's basically saying yeah. drugs drove the Third Reich initially. Yeah, and then just like you know anybody becoming strung out on a drug, it, it led to the deterioration and ultimately downfall of the Third Reich, and that's a big big thing to say like there's there are very few things in history especially massive world changing things like the third reich and world war ii and the holocaust that you can just pin one thing on and i'm sure he's not saying like that is it there's nothing else to it but he's saying like this is a huge contributor of it and he's the first he's not the first person to say yeah the nazis did a lot of drugs he seems to be the first uh, author to to really say yeah, the Nazis did a lot of drugs, and this was the result. Yeah, and I think from what I uh, – the parts of the book that I read and doing this research, it it is – it's not much of a leap. So <clears throat> when you have facts and, like, the number of pills, which we'll get into, and what these pills were, there's just no disputing the physiological effect that it has on people. Right. And what these drugs do, because that's why they were taking them. So it's not much of a leap, even though it is some conjecture to say, you know, the Blitzkrieg was uh, probably super effective because they were all on crank. Yeah, it gives Blitzkrieg bop like a new meaning, <laughs> you know? I, I That was totally off the cuff, too. Off the dome? Yeah. So should we talk about uh, old Germany and sort of the seed of this whole thing? Yeah, but first, one more thing while we're kind of on this particular riff. Yes. Um, I don't know because, again, I haven't read the book. I don't know that Oler is saying, and I don't think he is, that, like, the Holocaust wouldn't have happened if, if no. Germany hadn't been hopped up on drugs. 
Um, He's not some, saying that. Some people do say that. There's some revisionist historians who say, yeah, it was it was drugs that was that had gripped Hitler's mind, and had he not been on drugs, the Holocaust wouldn't have happened. That appears to be patently untrue. The earliest um, the earliest deaths executions in the Holocaust that I found go back to 1933. And the Nazis had such a tenuous grip on power that um, that that they had to basically make it look like these executions of these four Jews at Dachau um, were were for in, in, were them trying to escape, like they were shot trying to escape. Right. It was such a terrible, obvious lie that three SS officers and the camp commandant at Dachau were indicted for murder. That's how new the Nazis were into power, that they, these guys were indicted for murder. The indictments went away. But again, this was 1933, way early, way before anybody was on drugs. And, um, and the Holocaust was just, that was like the earliest beginnings of the Holocaust. And it showed this mentality and this drive and desire to carry out the Holocaust later on. So, so anybody who says that it was drugs that brought about the Holocaust is, is wrong, from what I understand. So you mentioned 1933. Uh, that is interesting. That date is because there were plenty of drugs. The Nazis weren't doing them yet, but they started passing laws in 1933 as one of the big first moves of the Nazis to um, to, to clean up the land, to clean up the Weimar Republic, which is uh, what Germany was basically known as from 1918 to 1933. Yeah, the Weimar Republic was a, an experiment at democracy in Germany, and it almost took, like, the last five years of the Republic showed, like, economic growth. It was during the Jazz Age, so everybody was kind of partying, uh, as we'll see. And um, it, it wasn't until the Great Depression started in 1929 that this really fragile republic, this really fragile democracy, just could not handle that kind of economic hit. And it gave Hitler and the National Socialism Party this perfect entree into power by saying, first of all, we can, we can turn things around economically. The Weimar Republic couldn't do it. And secondly, this whole Weimar Republic thing, everybody's on drugs. They're all degenerates. And then they use that idea of degenerate art, of people being on cocaine and morphine and, and tied it in with Judaism. And so anybody who was on drugs, anyone who was gay, uh, anyone who was, say, like a Roma, um, they were all tied in with the Jews. And all of those people were subject to the Holocaust um, right out of the gate. Yeah. So the stage is set. They're locking up, they're imprisoning, they're sterilizing addicts, um, denouncing these users. Uh, and then, and these are, like we said, cocaine and morphine, which Germany was like one of the leading or maybe the leading producer of cocaine in the world at the time, right? You got to tell them those statistics. Yeah. In the 1920s, Germany, uh, companies in Germany generated 40% of the world's morphine and controlled 80% of the global cocaine market. That is in the 1920s. Astounding. And so you can imagine that the Weimar Republic is awash in this. Oh, sure. And so there really was like a lot of, I mean, there was tons of, wow, I almost just said something else. There were tons of, um, <laughs> tons of horrible broken lives and addiction. There was a lot of um, homelessness. There was a lot of uh, prostitution. There was a lot of, um, a, a lot of, I, I mean, issues and problems that the society had. But there was also a lot of really 
interesting and good things that was coming out of this combination of a democracy awash in drugs. There were things like a lot more gender equality than there had been before. There was a lot of androgyny going on and kind of like the art and social scene. There was some really good art coming out. But again, the Nazis came along and denounced it as degenerate art and actually held an exhibition, Chuck, in 1937, a degenerate art exhibition where they showed everybody in Germany, this is bad art, and we're going to destroy a lot of this and replace it with um, the three Ks. It was Kinder, Kuch, I think Kuch, yeah, K-U with an umlaut, C-H-E, and sure. Kirsch. Mm-hmm. which is family, home, and church. And that is what our art, that is what our culture is going to be about. So the Weimar Republic provided this really great foil to what the Nazis were kind of rousing Germany out of. Like, hey, let's all get off the cocaine. Let's all get off the morphine. And in fact, if you know a, 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 an addict, tell the cops, you neighbor, you coworker, you family member, go inform on on the the drug users in this country. Let's let's clean Germany up. Let's clean Germany's bodies up. And let's move forward with an emphasis on family, home, and church. That's what the Nazis came to uh, Germany with in, in um, 1929, 1930. Right. And as this is going on, literally, as all this stuff is happening in the 1930s, early and mid-1930s, they're denouncing these people, locking them up, um, talking about how toxic these drugs are. Germany and companies in Germany were switching over to synthesizing drugs mm-hmm. and making speed and all kinds of drugs, synthetic, like precursors to OxyContin and uh, meth, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a firm in Berlin called the Timmler Firm, and they were headed up, and this was in 1937, by a man named Fritz Hauschild, who uh, later on was the sort of leading dude in East Germany's sports doping program. <laughs> so he's no, he knows what he's doing. Sure. So they synthesized basically crystal meth into something, and it, you know at least it has the same kind of active ingredients, as a little pill called Pervitin, uh, mm-hmm. P-E-R-V-I-T-I-N. And um, it wasn't just the army that used this. And we'll, we'll get into all that because the German military was definitely hopped up on what we now know as crystal meth. But this stuff was over-the-counter at first, and a lot of Germany was using this. Housewives were using it. And we should say that, like, the same stuff was going on as Benzedrine in the United States. Right. Like, there were, it seems like the whole world was hopped up on speed. It was. In the 1930s. And but, not just the 30s, like well into the 60s easily. Well, no, I mean starting in the 1930s. Right, right, sure. Uh, and so Pervitin was over the counter at first. Eventually, uh, you know, some alarm bells started going off. So they was like, we might want to make this prescription. And then they said, well, you know what? We don't know if the general public should have this at all, but we totally want our military to still have it. Yeah, it was called the Stimulant Decree where the um, the head of the German um, physiology department in the in the defense ministry, uh, his name was Otto Ranke. He said, "Give me thirty five million of those stimulant tabs because we're f- waging a war on exhaustion." As we'll see, let's let's before we hop into the military, you want to take a break? Yes. Okay, I'm ready. We need starting, to shave our heads too. Starting now. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Okay, Chuck. So in Germany, before before there, there's a really important point that I don't want to gloss over. Germany went from this, as far as the Nazis were concerned, this kind of shiftless, um, high unemployment, fragile economic state where a lot of people were selling and doing cocaine and morphine recreationally and to stave off depression. I mean, they were in a pretty bad spot as a country. Or to lose weight or like, you know. Well, well, no, not yet. Not yet. It, that was not the point of it yet. It was strictly to get high is what they were doing in the Weimar Republic. So the when, weight loss was just a perk. When the Well, no, that was a Nazi thing. So then the Nazis come along and they say, we're not doing cocaine and morphine anymore. Let's try these other synthetic stimulants that can be produced strictly in Germany. And one of the things that is a benefit is weight loss or I saw first date jitters or um, just self-confidence, depression, anything you could think of that you might need a little boost for. Pervitin was was advertised for. I almost said prescribed, but like you said, it was over the counter. And so it's really interesting that that um, Norman Oler makes this point. Around the time that Pervitin came out and started to come into widespread use, the German economy started cranking into full gear. So one of the first points that Oler makes is without this speed, Germany probably wouldn't have been able to get onto wartime footing as fast as it did because it happened overnight in in terms of like huge social social change and that was a big part of it was this pervitin the speed that everyone in germany was on and now thinking about you know the the german the the health of the german country in germany itself yeah and you know if you think about a military being hopped up on speed um it has a lot of initially may have a lot of advantages in that not only are you feeling euphoric and confident and you're super focused, but you can also battle it up and war it up for two days straight without sleeping and still feel good. So they were passing them out literally in chocolates. Uh, some of them were called uh, Panzer Schokolade, tank chocolate mm-hmm. for the tank drivers and tank crews. And then they would give them to the Air Force. They would give them to pilots, and they called it uh, either pilot salt or pilot's chocolate. Mm-hmm. And between, dude, between April and July, just, what is that, four months? Yes. In 1940, more than 35 million doses of Perbitin were manufactured for the Army and the Air Force alone. That is so crazy. <laughs> Over three, three and a half, four months, 35 million doses. And, I mean, there are plenty of accounts um, – like on record, this is not speculation at all. There was a Nobel Prize winner named Heinrich Boll who won the Nobel Prize in 1972 for literature. And he was uh, he was in the Army back before he was an author. And like there are letters home where he's like, mm, perhaps you could obtain some more Perbitin for my supplies <laughs> and just send it on over. Mm-hmm. So they love the stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They loved it. Um, not not just like the the actual like soldiers loved it, which they very much did from all uh, from all appearances, but also the the people running the show um, of the military, the Wehrmacht, loved it too. They because, were on it. Well, they were on it themselves, sure, but they also loved like the effects. Like they, it turned. German soldiers into like super soldiers, basically. They didn't need sleep. They could they could hike through forests for days on end, and they did actually. The Blitzkrieg into France was carried out over 
about three three plus days. And um, Norman Oler says in his book that in a, in less than a hundred hours, Germany gained more land in France than it did throughout the entirety of World War One, and it was because it was one big push all the way into France that took place over three days nonstop. There wasn't like, let's let's move like 20 miles and then camp for the night right. and then pick up the next morning. It was a nonstop move into France. And from what I understand, no one in, in the modern world had ever seen anything like that from a military. It didn't make any sense. And that was it for France. I mean, like this was May of 1940. France France fell like almost immediately just in the face of this. And they had used the same tactic in Poland the year before. And all of this was, the, the, it's not like, oh, this coincides with the time that, you know, the military was, was ordering Pervitin. It's documented that Pervitin was the reason that this these pushes were able to happen and why Germany looked like they really were going to take over the world in the early stages of World War II. Yeah, and this stuff was, I mean, it was it was from the top down. And we'll, we'll get to Hitler's drug use in uh, the third act of this podcast because that stuff is super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was definitely top down, like the head of the Research Institute of Defense Physiology, basically the the lead physiologist for the German military. His name was Otto Runk. Yeah, I, I mentioned him. Yeah, yeah. He was, uh, he, was, he was hopped up on it himself. He's the one that endorsed this from the beginning. And basically, it's like medically documented that he, he essentially at a certain point was living in a constant state of speed meth overdose. So, uh, all right. So the, the Army, the Air Force... Everyone's all hopped up on this drug. Um, they are literally, like, prescribing this as, like, these young, like, 17-, 18-year-old German soldiers are are signing up for the Army. Or did they sign up or did they just get absorbed? Uh, it depends on when in the, in the war you're talking about. Toward the end of the war, they had no choice. They were just drafted. Well, at any rate, they would say, like, here's your outfit. Um, it's very sharp, I think you must admit. And, Hugo Boss. Yeah, and the soldier would say, thanks a lot. And they would say, here's your weapon, and here's your speed. Like, put this under your tongue starting now. Yeah, and then here's all the rest of your speed to carry around with you. Just come back when you need some more. Yeah, in the short term, you know, it's it's like we've done plenty of episodes on drugs and on crystal meth. And the short term— <laughs> We've been on crystal meth while we've done the episodes. Is that what you're saying? No. I see uh, what you mean. The short-term effect was was great, and like you said, they made so many gains so much more quickly to the point where Churchill was apparently dumbfounded by how fast they operated. Mm-hmm. But like over time, it's going to have the effect of any other drug. Just because it comes packaged and marketed as a prescription doesn't mean it wasn't crystal meth. And over time, what happens is sleep deprivation and very poor decision-making, not sharp focus— and soldiers who would die of heart failure or who would take their own lives during psychotic breakdowns and, you know, withdrawal when they couldn't get their hands on the pervitin. So this very much ended up biting them on their German heinies uh, even after their initial successes. Right, yeah. And, and um, I mean, you can point to the the places where the where the war started to turn that that coincide with— um, you know, 
uh, points where it had been years that the German army had been on stimulants and speed for basically every day since then. And like, I mean, you don't even have to, you could be the most drug naive person in the world and you still know that staying on speed for three years is good. There's eventually going to be a bottoming out. And that's not a place where you want to be as a military, especially when you're deep into Russia in the winter. If your whole army is bottoming out on yes. after Matthews? Yes, that's not good. And that seems to be what happened. Like one of the reasons why the Russia offensive was was um was not was not successful is because there was a lot of um a lot of um, I keep using the word fallout or bottoming out. What's it called when like you oh crashing from Rock speed? Bottom, crashing. Sure, and like and and suffering from psychosis and all sorts of other problems. And then even if it wasn't directly like their their decision making wasn't affected, or even if you take all of that out, being in Russia, caught in Russia in the winter, um, while being addicted to speed for three years, oh <laughs> that is not a good place. Your body's not in the kind of place where it can fight off pneumonia easily or stay warm easily. It's severely compromised just on, like, say, a first dose of speed in that situation. But after being on speed every day for three years, that's a really bad situation. So in that sense, at the very least, speed would have contributed to uh, a really huge um setback for the German army that a lot of people point to as one of the, at least the the real nail in the coffin for Germany, which was um, Russia not being successful and Russia turning the tides and pushing Germany back, or the German army, back into Germany and then chasing it into it. That was a, that was a big deal, and it's possible that speed played a really big factor in it. Well, for sure. I mean, we, we talked about Oler's speculation about some of this stuff, but Again, it's it's sort of a numbers game. I mean, there there are studies that show that uh, if you take crystal meth a lot for three years, uh, that two thirds of the people who who use that drug in that way are going to suffer from serious psychosis. So it's just a math problem. If that many pills were literally being handed out in the army, and they were all using it for that amount of time, then that means, according to studies, that two thirds of the German army at some point, we're suffering from psychosis, drug-induced psychosis. That's not good. No. And f- apparently, toward the end of the war, um, German chemists were trying to come up with new drugs. There was one that didn't get deployed, um, but that was tested. Or I think it might have been deployed. I can't remember. Um, called Drug 9, or D-I-X, Roman numeral 9. And it was basically like cocaine and morphine and then another kind of morphine. And it was it was meant to combat the to get the German army back on its feet, um, but it was just so over the top that it was never never issued in in like any kind of wide supply, because it was just it was basically like here addicts here's a brand new super drug that's going to keep you going, but it it didn't quite work. But they found I saw that in tests on on concentration camp inmates, they would they would hike. In a, in a circle, like 90 kilometers in a day without rest. So it would work, but uh, I think uh, they also tried it on some, some one-man subs, and it didn't work out very well. D9 so sounds like, like the dude in college that's like, dude, 
I got some D9, man. It was this like yeah, it this, this German drug back in World War II that was a combination. It's the ultimate super drug. Right. And some guy in uh, Indiana is making it now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. That's where they would make it. When in fact it was just, you know, white crosses smashed up. Right. And mixed with, um, you know, Pillsbury sugar cookie dough. <laughs> All right. So I think we should take another break. We're going to finish up with uh, what I think is the most interesting part of this whole thing, which is uh, Adolf Hitler's rampant drug use and his his own Michael Jackson-esque personal doctor who, <laughs> who injected him on a daily basis. Right after this. All right, so there's this doctor. His name was uh, Dr. Morell, Dr. Theodore Morell. Mm-hmm. And he kind of uh, wormed his way into, he was not a highly um, thought of doctor. He was not highly credited to begin with. He was sort of known as a quack. He was a dermatologist, though. And I think that's how he, he first curried favor with Hitler was in curing his, his um, longtime eczema. Right, and he also practiced, uh, he uh, worked on venereal diseases and stuff like that. And starting in 1936, he managed to worm his way in there such that Hitler made him his private physician. And it's like, you always hear about these private physicians, whether it's Michael Jackson or Elvis or anyone in this high position of power Mm -hmm. or world leader who has their own Dr. Feelgood, essentially. Yeah. And that's what happened with Hitler. He... uh, I mean, should we just go ahead and talk about the daily routine? Sure. There's so many interesting things here. Hitler would, first of all, Hitler had bad, um, I mean, I guess you would call it IBS, um, notoriously flatulent and diarrhea and just had a bad, bad stomach problems and intestinal issues. Like gas that Dr. Morell once noted in his journals, because he kept (laughs) extensive journals on treating Hitler, who he called patient A. He referred to it as colossal gas. The likes of which he's never seen before. Like, that was the kind of gas that Hitler was dealing with. Of course Hitler had the worst farts of all time. Of all time. Worst farts in history. Yep. So, uh, he goes vegetarian. and Which did not help things. It did not help things because he basically subsisted on a diet of baby food. Um, they didn't call it baby food or serve it to him with a plastic spoon from a little tiny jar. <laughs> but he ate pureed watery vegetables, basically, yep. which is not going to cure your flatulence. Uh, and he was, he started to get uh, doped up a little bit from Morel. And he's like, hey, I feel a little bit better with this stuff. Right. And it got to the point where he didn't care what he was getting as long as the result was that it made him feel better. And so eventually Morel got up to the point where he was injecting him daily, multiple times a day, with anywhere from, I've seen 25 to 90 different drugs over the course of about nine years. Yeah, and so in all of this, it it started in 1936, and like you said, ran for nine years. And at first, it was, 
you know, Dr. Morell was one of the first doctors in Germany to espouse the, the healing and health benefits of vitamins. Before that, vitamins weren't really thought of as healthy. And he was like, no, they're super healthy. Watch, I'll show you on der Fuhrer. And what, remember, one of the things about Nazi Germany was that, like, you kept your body pure to help the German state. It was like a component of fascism was, was like being pure and drug-free. And, but if they were vitamins and they were injected by a doctor, that's fine. We can do all those. So um, this idea of keeping Hitler seeming like fit and active and like full of um, spit and vinegar, you know, um, that was supposedly from Morell's vitamin injections. But then as time went on and Hitler started to suffer more ill health again, some of these vitamins were supplemented by just straight-up straight up drugs uh, that were produced by Germany, like Pervitin and like all. Yeah, so Hitler's getting injected um, with and, – and like you said, he – like Hitler notoriously was uh, thought of as a teetotaler. He didn't even drink coffee. Right. He quit smoking. And he was supposed to be this picture of health. All the while, he's getting injected with everything from l- literal cocaine to morphine to precursors to Oxycontin to uh, extractions of uh, bull semen. Yeah. Because Hitler uh, very notoriously had um, issues in the in the ED department. Right. Testosterone. I mean, it's crazy the amount of drugs that he was getting injected with multiple times daily. I saw 80 was the high estimate on with one source. I saw 90 elsewhere. But a cocktail, and not just like here's one drug and then the next day here's a different drug, a cocktail of up to uh, combinations of up to 90 different drugs, uh, you know, during during the course of this this time, repeatedly getting injections, like daily injections. Apparently, toward the end of the war, Hitler's ve- veins had started collapsing. But um, to Hitler, or at least the way that Hitler pretended, was that this was his doctor, you know, shooting him up with vitamins. Um, when he when he got eye when he got uh, cocaine, it was given in the form of eye drops. Yeah, well, it, that was. That was early on. Like this was before they started shooting him up. Mm-hmm. They would give it to him in eye, dry, eye drops at ten times the concentration that, because uh, cocaine was used in medicine a little bit, um, but at very low doses. So he would ramp it up by ten times, squirt it in his eye, mm-hmm. and eventually, like anything else, you have to ramp it up to get that same high. So that's when the injection started. Well, he also started snorting it. I saw to um, to clear his to clear his sinuses and keep his throat clean or throat um, to ease his sore throat. Just stupid stuff like that. But it was through that Elvis paradigm, which was if a doctor's giving it to me, it's legal. It's a, it's not, it's not a drug drug. It would have been scandalous if it had gotten out that, that Hitler was snorting cocaine because, again, like the Nazis had associated that with, you know, degenerates in the Weimar Republic. So no one did cocaine. If Hitler had been caught doing cocaine, that would have been a big deal. Yeah. And, you know, by all accounts, by the end of the war, you know, those final dark, dark days of Hitler at the bunker. And and this we know this stuff because uh, Dr. Morell left behind a treasure trove of documentation to kind of cover his own butt just in case anything ever happened. So we have all this documentation, but from what everyone has written in history, in the final days, Hitler was just a straight-up junkie. 
Yeah, that's 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 certainly how Oler characterizes the whole thing. Um, and it's not just him. Like a lot of people are like, no, Hitler's health declined tremendously. Like he didn't go into the war with too many health problems aside from eczema and something called spina bifida occulta, which they think is responsible for his um, his problematic um, uh, bowels and gas. Right. But, like, he didn't have massive problems. He didn't have Parkinson's. By the end of the war, he seemed to have developed Parkinson's. He um, he had trouble walking. He, uh, he was very much emaciated and sallow. And so, um, Oler, for the first time, really lays this at the feet of Dr. Morell and his injections. Because not only, again, not only is it, like, cocaine and morphine and oxy, Oxycontin and... Um, uh, speed that he's giving Hitler. Some of these other concoctions are like really not good. There was an anti-gas pill called Doctor Cooster's anti-gas pills. <laughs> yeah. It had it had strychnine in it. Yeah, and he ate sixteen pills a day. <laughs> yeah, Hitler took a lot of those. And you know, if you take a lot of strychnine every day over the course of years, it's going to have some really negative impacts on you. So not only was it that Hitler was addicted to drugs, he was also being given some very poisonous, toxic materials by his doctor in other ways, too. And that was, it, it, it cumulatively had this effect. But I think the big money thing, Chuck, is like, how did it impact Hitler's judgment? How does that correlate toward the end of the war? And that's where Oler's really going to town. He's like, dude, Hitler was, like you said, just totally addicted to drugs, morphine, Oxycontin, um, speed. speed, cocaine, by the end of the war. And it had clouded his judgment. And even but no I think, coffee. No coffee still. <laughs> I think it might have been Himmler or Speer, one of his close advisors, had said, like, man, when, when the war started, Hitler Hitler could make a decision in a snap. Yeah. By the by the toward the end of the war by nineteen forty three. He, it was just like a, a nightmare watching him walk, like go back and forth and try to come to a conclusion and a decision, and that that was directly related to the drugs he was on. Well, and increasingly sequestered and paranoid, like the whole thing was a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you know, if, if you talk about Morel, what he had to gain was obviously the prestige of being— uh, Hitler's personal physician, but he had a lot of money in the in the game here because he was cranking out uh, this preparation that he called uh, Vitamultin that was marketed across Europe, and he was essentially in the drug business. Like, he was making tons of money, and he could trot out Hitler as his star patient. Right. And even went so far as to basically, he wrote a letter to the Reich Health Office because, you know, eventually doctors and People started coming out and saying, hey, like, this stuff is not good. We need to outlaw this. This is having a bad effect. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote the uh, Reich Health Office and said, the Fuhrer has authorized me to do the following. If I bring out and test a remedy and then apply it in the Fuhrer's headquarters and apply it successfully, then it could be applied elsewhere in Germany and no longer needs authorization. So, so yeah, it's like you just try to try to come back with a response to that. Yeah, and in the meantime, I'm building a factory Mm-hmm. And getting rich, uh, making speed for all of Germany. Yeah, this Vitamultin, there was like a billion packets ordered by just, you know, the um, the Wehrmacht alone, let alone like all of the German people. Um, that He sold a lot and made a lot of money off of it. Um, but from, from what seems to be, um, I guess, Oler's 
Oler's research has kind of shown that um, that uh, Morel was very much dedicated, not just as a doctor, but like personally sure. uh, to Hitler too, and that he most likely uh, over the years historians have accused Morel of purposefully trying to harm Hitler or um, something along those lines. But the, uh, the apparently Oler's like, no, this guy really was a, a true believer and was really like very much proud that he was Hitler's physician. He didn't know what he was doing. He definitely turned Hitler into an addict of multiple drugs. A super, I think a super addict is how um, Oler puts it. But he, he was still devoted to him. He wasn't doing it to cause deliberate harm. Right. Um, yeah, it's just so interesting, this this same thing with like Michael Jackson and Elvis. It's like there's this uh, weird thing that happens where you, uh, these doctors completely sell their souls to work alongside these people in positions of power mm-hmm. and essentially kill them eventually. Right. Uh, by just feeding them whatever drug they needed. Like he was not only on speed. Obviously, to counteract that, you need – something to bring you down. Right. So then he would get injected with something called Eucadol. That's the Oxycontin pre, pre, uh, yeah. Re- relative. Yeah. So he, I mean, he didn't know which way was up at a certain point. Um, eventually, like, he would, he fired Morel on April 17th. Uh, two weeks later, Hitler put a bullet in his brain. Morel gets uh, tried for war crimes and goes to jail and then, I believe, died of a stroke in 1948. Yeah, he he was not tried for war crimes, but he was interrogated. I he was. No, he wasn't. Um, he was interrogated in prison for two years by the Allies, who just pumped him for all the information they could get about Hitler. So he was just in prison being questioned. Yes. Oh, interesting. And he ended up producing or contributing to like a forty-seven page report about Hitler and Hitler's health that the Allies had that didn't come out until I think the nineties in the U.S. Yeah. But um, he was a huge trove of information. But more than that. And the fact that he got Hitler addicted to OxyContin, that led to Hitler making some terrible decisions, to becoming increasingly paranoid, to stop listening to his generals, to becoming embarrassed for these defeats and, like, withdrawing even further, and then ultimately losing the war and um, taking his own life. In that sense, the world owes a tremendous debt to Theodore Morel. (laughs) It's kind of funny when you think about it. Like, we owe that, dude. And imagine this also, another way to look at this, Chuck. Imagine that you had gotten behind this this cult of personality, this leader, this charismatic leader who said, we are going to take over the world. And you decided that you were on board with that. You were a German who was going along with it. Maybe you were pepped up on a little bit of speed. Um, And then over time, right in the middle of this taking over the world thing, that's actually starting to seem like it might work. That leader decides that he's going to go and get hooked on like five different extraordinarily addictive drugs right in the middle of taking over the world. And that that would be the thing that brought about the downfall. Which you, which Oler makes the case is like, yes, you can lay a lot of this, the the downfall of of the Third Reich at the feet of drugs. Well, I mean, it's certainly you can't fault Oler for for going there because it is is such a juicy thing mm-hmm. to take all these facts about all this drug use, rampant drug use, and then years later go back and say like, what if this hadn't happened, or what was the overall effect? Not just that they did these drugs, but what, how did it affect history? Right. Super interesting. Yeah, it's extraordinarily interesting. I mean, that's that's good stuff. 
Oh, I, fi- I found one other thing too I want to mention. What you got? There's something called Mutaflor mm-hmm. or Mutaflor, M-U-T-A-F-L-O-R. It's still available. It was Hitler's go-to probiotic. And it was isolated in 1917 from a stool sample taken from a World War I soldier who, while everybody else in his troop was like getting dysentery left and right, he was healthy. And this doctor noticed and, and isolated a particular kind of bacteria in this guy's stool. And you can buy um, pills made from that line of bacteria to this day, except it's illegal in the U.S. for some reason, which makes me really want to see what it's all about. Hmm. But you're eating World War One poop bacteria <laughs> when you take this mutaflor. But it was given to Hitler, and apparently it worked. Wow. So Hitler's probiotic, which I'm sure— nine and some mutaflor. I'm sure mutaflor is like, please don't call it Hitler's probiotic. We're still <laughs> trying to sell that stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, if you want to know more about uh, Hitler and drugs, just go read um, Blitzed. The Third Reich and Drugs by Norman Oler. Or you can go read all the book reviews about it, uh, like I did. And since I said that, <laughs> it's time for Listener Mail. Uh, I'm going to call this uh, uh, Epic Pants Story. Oh, no. Uh, in the Science of Breakups, um, you were talking about getting pants. Oh, yes, I remember. So, this is from Anonymous. Uh, hey, guys, it happened in high school. I was gathering up the nerve to ask a girl uh, out on a date that I had a crush on. Uh, To set the scene and highlight the level of embarrassment I'm setting myself for, it's worth noting that at this point in my life, I had never actually asked a girl out this boldly. Uh, I was going to do it face-to-face in the classroom in front of her friends and my friends. Jeez, that's not a good idea. Can't you, like, catch her by her locker? (laughs) She's not surrounded by people. He was hopped up on Pervitin, feeling really uh, confident. Maybe. Uh, This is out of character for me, but I couldn't find the courage on my own, so I confided in a close friend who agreed to be my wingman. He was very supportive, plus he had insider info that he had actually heard her say that she liked me. Man, remember those days, how sweet that was? Yes. Did she like me? (laughs) Yes, no. I heard she likes me. (laughs) Yes, no, or maybe. Uh, The teacher left the classroom for a minute, and my trusty mate uh, said I should go for it and do it right now. So with the encouragement from him, I needed... Uh, and I was nervous as H. I walked over to her table of friends, interrupted them, had her full attention, and started asking uh, her out on the date. I was actually doing it, guys. I felt amazing. And then, bam, my super supportive mate had set me up and pantsed me in front of her and the whole class. Oh, no. Oh, it gets worse. He's like, "Uh uh-huh. No, I'm not going to say it. I'm not gonna <laughs> I think you know what's coming. Yeah. The execution was perfect, guys. 100% pants, full Monty before the whole class and for a whole second before I could halt the process. Dude, could you imagine? Right. I would never like, recover. Hey, no, I'd, I'd move. I'd go home and be like, we have to move to a new school in yeah. a new state, maybe a new country. Uh, well, it's funny you mentioned that because I think every school also had some kid who didn't show up after summer the next fall uh-huh. and when in fact his dad got a transfer but there would be some story cooked up on why the kid right, had exactly. to move. <laughs> I saw him on a milk carton. <laughs> we, there was a kid at our school who supposedly moved because he masturbated in class and got caught and I don't think any of it was true. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. But is there like a kernel of truth to that? You know what I mean? I don't know. I Maybe remember his name class, all these years later. The playground? Say it. <laughs> no. Actually don't say it. But it's funny, I haven't thought about that since the ninth grade. I'm going to totally look him up and see if he's out there. Um, 
Anyway, guys, the betrayal was seconds uh, was second to Judas, and the wave of embarrassment so gargantuan that all I could do was just take a seat and die inside. Uh, we were in art class, but if the subject was advanced pantsing, my mate would have gotten an A+. He's like, I, I was so embarrassed, I couldn't even pull my pants up when I took a seat. I just <laughs> sat down with my bare butt and fruit basket right on the lunchroom bench. I just gave into it, guys, and went dong out for the rest of the semester. Um, what? No, no, no. He didn't oh. say that. <laughs> I was like, wow, good for this guy. I was just riffing on your bit. Like, um, I feel like I'm about to throw up. I must. I look <laughs> green right now, right? So he keeps saying mate. It turns out he is Australian because he says P.S. In Australia, instead of saying pants, we say dacked, D-A-C-K-E-D. I saw that somewhere. Uh, dacks refer to pants like tracky dacks or track pants. Uh, to put it in a sentence, my mate is such a dog, he full dacked me in front of this chick I like. Mm-hmm. And that's from Anonymous. Thanks a lot, Anonymous. I uh, appreciate you sharing that, even though it was anonymously. That's right. Uh, if you have a horrifically cringeworthy story, we want to hear it. We'll make it through it together. You can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and check out our social links. You can also uh, hit us up via email if you want to stuffpodcast at iheartpodcastnetwork.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Listener.